Good afternoon, everyone. This is John Furu of the Geopolitics This Week podcast, and we are going to begin today with the second part in our series on the geopolitics of South America, the politics of bad and worse. Now, this podcast is going to be focusing more on recent history, geography, economics, finance, and the political situation in many of these countries and how they interact with the United States, other trade members. And so if you're looking for the more in-depth historical explanation from any of these countries, I'm going to direct you back to the first episode of this podcast to where I discuss um, the history of many of these countries and how certain historical events such as um, former unions like Grand Colombia and wars like the War of the Triple Alliance in the War of the Pacific sort of shaped relationships between all these nations. And so... If you're new to this material, I advise you go back to part one before listening to part two. And also, I do have analytics on this podcast, so I do get to see where um, people are listening from. I'd like to uh, shout out my people in El Salvador who are listening in on this podcast. I didn't realize anyone in El Salvador would ever want to listen to me. So (laughs) Uh, my capacity to speak Spanish is very thin, and so I appreciate... um, Spanish-speaking listeners even more if they're putting up with language English as their second language. So thank you, and also thank you to my listeners in the United Kingdom and, of course, the United States. And so without further ado, we will begin with what should we expect from South America? Now, just like the previous podcast, I'll be moving from north to west to south and then to east, finishing with Brazil. And so we're going to start with a country that has been consuming headlines in the news um, for roughly the past two decades, and that is Venezuela. Venezuela, as I've gone through my outline and sort of captioned all these countries, um, Venezuela basically proves how good governance can defy bad geography and how bad government govern, governance can seal its fate. So we'll start with what are the mainstays of the Venezuelan economy prior to the rise of Hugo Chavez and his successor, Nicolas Maduro. Um, the two things that used to bring in dollars or, or just capital in general to Venezuela were agriculture and oil, which means you have to deal with um, commodity booms and bust cycles. Now, what makes agriculture so hard in most of South America is that the rainforest sort of depletes the quality of the soil to the point where it's almost useless. And so Venezuelan agriculture was able to defy this in a way because not only can the nation produce its own oil capacity, uh, but with its limited ability, and it's very limited because um, we'll talk about this when we discuss the oil sector, the oil quality isn't great. And so the Venezuelans in a limited capacity were able to basically manufacture the chemicals, fertilizers, and import the necessary lime to help treat the soil to make their agriculture work. And so the exportation of everything from bananas to wheat um, to corn, maize, and all these other agricultural products was rather quite successful, mostly because they had the money to not only terraform the necessary plots of land to get that sort of um, growth they wanted, um, but they were able to use oil revenues and the oil chemicals to... um, to get the material necessary to treat it on their own. And so when we discuss the oil sector, um, there are different grades of crude oil. Um, 
shale oil that we have in the United States is often called light and sweet, mostly because it is very pure and it has a very, very um, low viscosity. So it flows just like water. And so when you're trying to pipe it from point A to point B or transport it by truck or by barge or by train car, it is some of the easiest stuff to move. But when we're talking about sort of the opposite side of that spectrum, what is uh, considered a bad quality of crude oil, that's when you're getting into the heavy sour or even the tar sands of Canada. Um, but Venezuela has what's known as um, heavy sour crude to where it's got the very high viscosity and it has <clears throat> essentially the consistency of tar. And so even though Venezuela is blessed with the largest oil reserves on the planet, its ability to tap those reserves is rather quite limited and requires a very competent oil major, um, which Pedavesa, um, better known as Sitco in the United States, um, for most of its lifetime as a government-owned um, oil major was very competent at doing this. And so combined with um, American refinery capability to process Venezuelan heavy sour, um, the Americans and Venezuelans were able to develop a harmonious relationship through most of Venezuela's history, where when American um, oil production peaked in the late 60s, early 70s, Venezuela was able to step into the gap and provide almost 20% of America's imported oil needs between 1970 through the late 1990s before Hugo Chavez rose to power. And so that relationship with the United States was instrumental to Venezuela's success because not only did America have the capacity to refine um, Venezuelan heavy sour crude, but the Venezuelans were always, almost always guaranteed a customer for their very heavy, um, not great oil quality, mostly because the consumption needs of the United States for oil between that time period um, made price not an obstacle. And so American oil companies like Exxon Mobil, Chevron, uh, Sino Oil, and other companies would be willing to build out the infrastructure in the refinery spaces in Louisiana and Texas to refine that heavy sour. But that's where we start talking about how bad governance can really destroy a country. Venezuela, for most of its history, despite being one of the more prosperous countries in South America, was very unequal. And a lot of that has to do with geography. Um, so your wealthy populations who would have a lot of money, so your middle class, your upper middle class, and then your upper class, would live predominantly along the coast of Venezuela in the north and in Caracas. Um, which means you not only have access to trade centers, you have access to the ocean, and you have access to primary contacts of commerce. But the further you move into the interior, where the geography gets considerably harsher, rainforests, mountain ranges, and these isolated valleys and springs, that's where you start running into trouble. And what ended up happening is that Venezuela's um, sort of wealth makeup became very stratified to the point where you had a separation between the two income classes. The rich and middle class would live in the coast or in the capital, and the poor would live in essentially would be the boonies or in the outskirts of Caracas in the slums. And so as income inequality became worse, as government became more mismanaged and more incompetent, as um, oil wealth became squandered on um, mismanaged social programs that wouldn't become sustainable, then someone like Hugo Chavez, who promised to 
engage in uh, complete dispersal of oil wealth to the poor became a very popular and very viable candidate. And so when he ascended to power in 1998, he was considered broadly popular with at least half the population. And so when the private businesses and companies attempted to go on strike, basically, and shut down um, in 2003-2004, he was able to weather that that political storm because of his popularity with the one segment of the population he was guaranteed to be popular with, and that was at least half the country. And so during that time, um, private business would be forced to reconcile with Hugo Chavez, and a lot of people just chose to leave, like my parents and myself. And during Hugo Chavez's reign from 98 to 2011, he would do a lot of things that would sort of set the stage for Venezuela's eventual collapse. One of those things is using all of the oil money Venezuela got from basically selling oil to the United States on expensive social programs that were dependent on the price of oil being above a certain point. So commodity economies in general have to sort of strike this balance between having enough money when they sell their commodities to have a balance of payments that is neutral or slightly positive. So Russia, for example, needs a minimum price of oil per barrel of $40 in order to break even, a balanced budget. Saudi needs at least $50 to $60. Kuwait needs $40 to $35 a barrel. But Venezuela, because of the quality of its oil, needs a break-even price of between $120 and $140 per barrel. And as a result, because of the boom period between 2000 to 2010 and then the limited boom between 2013 through 2015, um, a lot of that oil wealth went to pumping enormous amounts of state capital into education, healthcare, and social disbursement programs. Not to say that these programs are bad. Um, Venezuela, in order to counter some of the problems of income inequality, needed these programs to a certain extent, but he needed to be dispersed over a longer period of time and less dependent on oil revenues that need to come in immediately. Hugo Chavez didn't care about this because he just assumed prices would be up high forever. And when you make those sort of assumptions, you start outlaying a huge amount of money that you really can't afford to pay back. And so that's problem one. Problem two is that like many um, populist and strongmen, he would basically put his friends and people who were loyal to him in all the crucial um, positions in the government. And considering Peda Vesa, the oil major of Venezuela, was part of that um, government establishment, over the course of his tenure during his presidency, he would continuously raid Peda Vesa of all of its competent personnel. And all his competent personnel that had the money to leave left because not only was the money bad in Venezuela, but the money was considerably better in places like the United States, the UAE, Saudi, Qatar, Kuwait, and they were offering better salaries. So all the good critical talent were either fired or replaced by um, Chavez's uh, friends, or they just simply left and took um, their families with them. And so that's the first signs of capital flight we saw out of Venezuela. And those are the two critical weaknesses. And so when we start talking about the end of Venezuela as a nation, which is what I'm predicting, the collapse of Venezuela, 
um, we sort of get this really eerie timeline between 2011, after Chavez died in office, to today, where Nicolas Maduro took his place, who was not only the vice president to Hugo Chavez during this time period, um, but was a loyal acolyte of Hugo Chavez, and was originally a bus driver in Caracas. Not to say that, obviously, someone who starts at the bottom can't be a competent leader, but Nicolas Maduro was certainly not an example of how that can be the case. And so between, during his tenure from 2011 to modern day, um, Venezuela peak oil production would drop from $3 million, three million barrels of oil a day under Hugo Chavez between 2001 to 2006, um, would drop to, at its peak, 2.5 million to a million barrels a day um, between 2011 and 2016 to now it's very very rough collapse of 1.5 million from 2016 to less than 500,000 barrels of oil a day. And for Venezuela, that's a huge problem as most of the revenues that are coming in to import all its food needs because it can't produce any food domestically anymore um, due to collectivization policies um, to fund government services, to fund the military. You run into a lot of problems. And Within the next couple of years, um, I say one to two years, the production will probably collapse underneath 250,000 barrels a day and will start stridling the edge of what Venezuela needs for its own domestic needs. That's why Venezuela stopped subsidizing oil to the point where oil was in, like gasoline itself for cars was essentially free. Now it's super expensive. It's why food prices have gone up even more. It's why inflation has become uncontrollable in Venezuela. Despite the numerous attempts to re-denominate the currency by basically slashing or removing zeros from their currency, its ability to provide for its own power needs are coming to a very swift conclusion. And once Venezuela stops having the capacity to produce its own needs, then it has to rely on imports. And when there's nothing left in the economy to generate dollars for that process to occur, your country is about to return to the Stone Age and be decivilized. And the second thing we got to look at is the end of Venezuela's nation is the recent outflow of refugees from Venezuela. Um, between 2016 and 2018, those who had the money left, so we're talking um, everyone from lower middle class to up to what would be considered the upper class of the top 1%, if they had the money to fly out of Venezuela, they did. And that number is probably between 500,000 to 1.5 million people in Venezuela. It was a country of 30 million people. So off the top, you lost about one-thirtieth of your population. And then between 2018 and 2020, those who still had the physical strength to walk out of the country into Brazil or Colombia left the country, and that was between 6 and 7 million people, um, either coming to the United States, going to Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Chile, and Brazil. And... At that point, when we start looking at those numbers, that's about a fourth of your country that has left and probably more. And those who stayed behind are probably the people who couldn't bear leaving um, elderly parents or sick children or disabled family members. And so they stayed behind to take care of them. Uh, but once the power goes out and there's no longer any food coming in, we're probably going to see a second smaller wave of refugees leave Venezuela probably between 1.5 and 3 million people. And those who are left 
who can't walk out of the country, the people who are so malnourished, food deprived, who are already disabled, the elderly who are left behind, they're not going to make it. Venezuela as a country without a significant military intervention from a stronger power like the United States and the commitment of trillions of dollars of capital to revitalize Venezuelan infrastructure is not going to survive. And so when I captioned Venezuela, how good governance can defy bad geography, but bad governance can seal its fate, Venezuela has bad geography, but that didn't used to matter as much because not only did it have good relations with the United States, but its government was almost most of the time competent, technocratic, and professional. But once it started sliding down the the slippery slope of unprofessional governments and um, handing out political favors in the form of cabinet positions, that's when you start to get the deprofessionalization of the civil service. And when that happens, when your country's so dependent on so many things going right, more of those things start to go wrong. And so Venezuela is returning to its historical norm of being a very poor nation incapable of supporting itself despite its massive mineral wealth. And I think we shouldn't expect Venezuela to recover. Now we're going to move on to its neighbor, Colombia, which I have captioned the art of the deal. And so there's a reason why I've done that. Colombian geography is not great. Yet the Andes Mountains essentially pushing most of its population to the coasts, with the exception of Bogota, its capital. Bogota sort of lies in between two smaller mountain ridges in this valley system um, that has an opening to a coast, so it's viable. Um, but when you have that sort of stratification where you can't access half your country because of a mountain range and you're sort of pushed close to the ocean, that's where you start running into problems of economies of scale, access to mineral resources, which are in the interior but blocked by mountain ranges. Um, but Colombia has been able to defy this problem mostly because it did the exact opposite of what Venezuela did in that the benef- it, it seized the benefits of being in the good grace of the Americans and continues to bear hug the United States as much as it can. And even if the United States doesn't like Colombia, Colombia will always like the United States. And so we can even just look at recent Colombian history. So Colombia in its recent history, so 1940 through 1970, has always been characterized by being a poor country, divided by internal strife through the rise of the various cartels, to where the government was basically fighting an eternal civil war by the time 1970 came around. It was during this time that Nixon declared the war on drugs, which became a huge political opportunity for the Colombians. So the Colombian leadership came to the United States and offered a deal basically saying, if you help us reconstitute our military, our government, and our country, we will become an open nation for American capital. And with a nation that has, that had at the time a very young population, um, a very small but well-educated class of Colombians, and plenty of mineral agricultural resources to be tapped, the Ameri- that got the Americans' ear. And so, so during this time, the Colombians would become a massive partner for the Americans in the war on drugs, leading to not only intelligence sharing between Colombian and U.S. military and intelligence organizations, 
but American military and DEA trainers would go to Colombia to train and professionalize the Colombian military and its intelligence assets and its police force to where Colombia is sort of this shining example of how hugging the United States, even when the United States isn't always the most friendly to you at times, can be a massive benefit to your country. Since 1970, Colombia has always ranked very high for South America when it comes to the reduction in corruption, the ability for the government to provide certain services, and its friendliness towards investment. Not to mention, because it was able to hug and basically hoard for between 1970 through 1990, basically all of America's attention when it comes to security assistance, they were able to build not only a military that was capable of pacifying the interior, but has a limited offensive capacity as well. So it can operate outside of Colombia if it wanted to in a very sort of limited but small extent. But that is still more than what most of most of the South American countries can do. The only other country that has the ability to project power outside of its own borders is very likely Chile with its historical competence of military affairs. And then Argentina, who has the good geography to develop the economies of scale, to build out its own infrastructure, and then build out the tools necessary to project power into other areas with less developed or less conducive geographies. But because of Colombia's relationship with the United States, it's been able to do this. And so when I think about Colombia's future, I've captioned it, captioned it as, Colombia continues to bask in the sun. And what do I mean by this? Colombia, while having an aging demography, as it doesn't have that young population, that young segment at the, bo- the bottom of your population pyramid, to be a source of, co- of domestic consumption. So in the future, Colombia is going to have to export what goods it can't consume in order to grow. And because of its close relationship with the United States, it doesn't need to be worried about being closed off from the largest and wealthiest consumer market in the world, and that's the United States, which many other countries or even trade zones have to worry about. The South Koreans, the Japanese, the Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese all have to export large components of their economy in order to grow. And when the United States is looking to retrench itself, become more domestically self-sufficient, it's going to be very important to have good relationships with the United States. And Colombia not only has that currently, but has had it since the early 1960s to 1970s. And so the access to the American consumer markets and American capital will continue to be instrumental to Colombia's success and will continue to be a place of possible investment opportunities in manufacturing and services, um, but would be one of the few places where capital that is scarce can still find places to grow and earn value. Colombia is going to be an excellent place to invest probably the next 20 years because of this access to the United States. And there's another instrument, a uh, very highly probable event as well. I think it's very likely Colombia may take advantage of the Venezuelan collapse to expand along its shared border in the Caribbean because the mountain ranges basically only allow Colombia to access maybe a quarter of Venezuela's viable land. And so I think it's very likely that in order to resettle the nearly 3 million Venezuelan refugees and likely another million in the future that will probably flee to Colombia in the last days of Venezuela, 
that they may choose to annex a quarter of that land that they can occupy and use it to resettle Venezuelan refugees and hope to get them a new start. The, mil the Colombian military is more than capable of doing this and to resettle this area and also rebuff any Venezuelan last attempts to take back land or any small war that might come at that. Um, the problem is, is that um, it's going to cost a ton of money to overcome what harsh Venezuelan geography is in that quarter of usable land, but also to rehabilitate um, critical infrastructure that has been largely abandoned by Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro for the past two decades. And so that's why I think it's only a possibility, not a likely occurrence because of that cost. Um, but as long as Colombia has access to American capital and American markets, I think it's a possibility. And so Colombia, despite all the things that we should be going against it, it's because that I believe they're going to stay in the good graces of the Americans because of their long history of the Americans and their willingness to take even the worst aspects of the United States in its relationship and its stride. Colombia will continue to be a bright spot on the continent. Now we move just a little bit more to the West to Ecuador. Ecuador can be best surmised as the benefits of being boring and isolated. Ecuador is sort of surrounded on all sides except for the Pacific Ocean by the Andes Mountains and massive rainforests. It has been the nation's greatest ally since becoming independent in 1809 and then after the collapse of Gran Colombia in 19 in 1831 rather and despite being at war with Colombia and Peru over claims on territory the core of the nation where all its population lives lives has been largely protected by that geography as Colombia and Peru chose to take the parts that were the least viable those parts occupied by mountains and rainforests and so and when it comes to my predictions about Ecuador in the future mostly just sort of revolve around it continuing continuing what it's already doing and that is being a rather quiet and boring place that is still in the sphere of the united states and a nation that continues to be internally stable even though it remains rather quite poor um, ecuador can be best surmised as a lower to middle income country one that's still heavily dependent on agriculture and mining on growing and so when we start looking at a nation like that, they're still going to be a heavily dependent export-based economy, but because they have good relationships with the United States, they're mostly going to be fine. And so the only thing things I'd have to worry about when it comes to Ecuador is mostly the only reason why it's ever in the news, and that usually only has to do with financial crises. And so in the early 2000s, so this would have been well, I guess this would have been the later 2000s, so 2005 through 2008, Ecuador came into a a bit of a crisis where it was largely in debt to Chinese um, sovereign banks, um, state-owned enterprises, and the Chinese government to where the nation's very limited but profitable oil capacity was essentially taken over by the Chinese as a form of um, – basically repossession or to pay back its debts. And then once the debts were paid back, the assets would be turned back over to the Ecuadorian government. At this time, despite the good relationship between the current administration of George W. Bush and the, pure, the Politburo in China, 
this was still a very controversial issue as um, you basically had the Chinese operating the tools of taxation and financial wealth in a country that was in the traditional American sphere of influence. And so for a short period of time, while the Chinese recouped their losses, the American relationship with Ecuador worsened a tiny bit. But once that was all sorted out and the Chinese got their money back, the assets are now mostly under control of the Ecuadorian government or by American oil majors, which was seen as a way to sort of forestall any problems with um, Ecuador basically using its crucial um, critical assets as collateral for any future debt or loan obligations. And then there's the more recent recent issue um, with Ecuador recently um, successfully renegotiating and refinancing a 2019 deal from the IMF to reform its um, reform its economy, deregulate the economy, and attempt to get the country back on its own currency. As of right now, the country is one of the few nations around the world that is predominantly dollarized, like Panama, to where they're basically their currency is the American currency. And when you have a system like that, obviously, you have monetary and value stability as you're basically holding U.S. dollars. The problem is, is that you're also going to experience recessions when the Americans experience recessions. And so that can be very rough on a country that is dependent on exports like Ecuador. And so when we talk about the future of Ecuador, we're likely going to see Ecuador be a interesting place, but not a great place to invest um, it's going to be a sleepy, lower-middle-income nation that benefits from its proximity to Colombia as a source for um, goods consumption like agriculture. And then its integration with the dollar system provides some economic stability where a country like Ecuador, if it had its own currency, would not be able to experience. And so splendid isolation and the benefits of being boring. Peru, just to forward this a little bit, I am biased. I am Chilean. Um, and so my feelings for Peru are pretty thin, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but it is hard not to see Peru as the picture-perfect definition of instability, mostly because it has always been a source of instability. It has never been a stable nation. And so... We're going to take a small tour through recent Peruvian history, so 19, nine, the 1900s to modern day. And so before we start that little bit of history, um, just to surmise what's going to come, and it's, that's where South American history sort of becomes very funny, but also a bit tragic at the same time. Um, Peru has always been a nation that has been consumed with wars internet within its own sphere so between Bolivia, between Bolivia Ecuador and Chile civil wars against itself multiple coups counter coups coups on itself at one point it was ruled by a Japanese man um, in the late 1990s and and booms and bust cycles are so spectacular it could make any nation that is sort of cursed by the the resource curse blush deeply and so when we start talking about Peruvian's history, that's sort of the frame of reference I want people to keep in mind. Um, so we'll start with early history. Peru, at the start of the 1900s, would experience three coups in rapid succession from 1929 through 1941. 
All these coups were caused by monetary and fiscal instability, contractions in the economy, inflation of the currency, the sort of um, Achilles heel that gets most um, resource-curse dependent nations. And so during that time where coups and counter-coups were happening, they started a war with Colombia several times. And in Ecuador, several times in 41 and 1985 over border disputes. And while these wars, the wars against Ecuador were successful in sort of re-denominating, not re-denominating, but basically shifting the border in Peru's favor, Peru got a whole bunch of territory it couldn't use because it was ge geographically isolated by mountains or dense rainforests. And whenever you're trying to develop something, the last places you want to be developing are places where you can't access. And those are places at the top of mountains and places deep in the heart of rainforest. So they won, but what did they really win? Its wars with Colombia were less successful, mostly because Colombia is le less geographically harmed by its geography than Peru is. If you look at a map of Peru, most of the country is dominated by the Andes Mountains, this beautiful mountain range that basically separates the east of South America from the west. The problem is, is that these mountain ranges force all of Peru's major cities to lie across the entire coast of the Pacific. And so when your interior, which is where you have your mineral wealth, your golds, your silvers, your coppers, your nickels, which Peru is, has an abundance with, you can't access them. As while the Americans have sort of a similar situation with the Appalachian mountain range, the Appalachians aren't nearly as hard to, to cross over, mostly because they're so far from the coast. It allows economies of scale to develop, which can produce the tools necessary to make infrastructure that can cross the mountains. And it also helps that the Appalachian range isn't that tall for a mountain range, which made it considerably easier and cheaper to sort of navigate around that problem. Peru doesn't have that benefit. The Andes mountain range is one of the tallest in the world, and it's one of the most geographically challenging. And so the ability for Peru to develop itself is predominantly dependent on those mountain ranges that are low enough to where they can be mined at their base or where they're tall enough to where there might be a plateau area where they can develop a small mining outpost where that those wealths can be taken from the higher elevation to the lower elevation. And as a result, its war of Colombia was less successful. And so their ter I think they actually in the end lost territory to Colombia, which at the end Colombia couldn't use because it's in the interior and the interior is hard to access. And so when we start looking past these wars, um, between 1948 through 1975, there would be two more coups. Um, it would, during this time between, um, after this time of basically five coups and counter coups and succession crises and all this fun stuff, um, Peru would reissue its currency three different times because it essentially got inflated into infinity. And so in 1985, it would discard its first currency for its second currency. And then in 1991, it would discard its second currency for its third currency, which it still uses today. And because of this monetary and currency-related stability issues, it led to the first largely successful, successful being a sort of flexible term here. I'm using successful here as causing maximum disruption and the possible chance of success. This domestic insurrection known as the Shining Path, uh, which was a semi-communist um, social democratic guerrilla group um, that started because of this currency instability in 1981, would soon come to dominate roughly 75% of the livable parts of the country 
to the point where they were terrorizing populations, able to collect taxes, and it was sort of, in a way, a Peruvian alternative to the Taliban, to where they were able to excise a disproportionate amount of influence. And so when we get to 1990, we sort of get to the more ugly side of Peruvian history, as if the, the counter coups, the coups of the 1929 through 199, basically 1975 era, weren't bad enough. Um, in 1990, they would elect a man known as Alberto Fujimori, a child of Japanese immigrants who arrived in Peru in 1934. He would almost immediately upon ascension to office dissolve the, the parliament and make himself dictator from 1990 through 2000. And like many South American dictators who are looked at in this sort of, um, with sort of a reverence, but also a hatred, um, he was known predominantly for crushing the Shining Path, the um, guerrilla group that had caused so much disruption between 1981 through 1990, um, restoring the nation's macroeconomic stability and investment climate by getting inflation down from 2,000% to 100% um, a year between 1991 through 1993, um, which for a nation experiencing hyperinflation is a huge accomplishment, and then deregulating the economy, making it attractive to investors. And during this time when basically the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had this massive influx of capital into the market, he did it at a perfect time where people were chasing for yield even in the most unattractive areas. He was able to capitalize on that and bring investment capital in to make Peru viable. But here's the problem. He violated very, almost essentially every human right that is on the book to the point where, um, I mean, the Swiss would probably end their neutrality and declare a war. It's that sort of insanity that um, Fujimori oversaw um, with the torturing of Shining Path members, to torturing and suppressing people of the opposition, even torturing people of his own party. That's how violent and vile this man was. And upon restoring elections in 2000, he was almost immediately impeached. He fled to Japan into exile until he was extradited from Japan in 2004, where he faced trial and is now living in Peruvian prison. And anyone who knows about prisons in emerging nations, uh, they're not very good. And so, despite this sort of political drama that occurred between 1990 and 2001, Peru was able to transition into democracy relatively smoothly, mostly because there was enough money in the system provided by international capital to where what would normally cause internal instability, internal divisions and coups and counter coups was temporarily suppressed by the amount of money in the system. And so Peru between 2000 and 2016 will ex would, would experience the single longest period of sustained growth, investment, and political stability characterized by rising incomes and moves towards diversifying the economy away from agriculture and mining its two largest sectors of the economy. But that is where we get to sort of modern day and where in 2016, the election of um, President Kuzininsky who was the former head of the World Bank, would start causing a chain reaction of events that would take us to today. Um, Kuznicki was running against the wife of the former president, Alberto Fujimori. And so it was a very tight election because you basically had the choice between the wife, actually I think it was the daughter, the daughter of Fujimori, because it was a fairly young woman I saw running the campaign. And so you basically had the option of choosing the daughter of a man who has a mixed 
very complicated and very painful legacy for Peru and this technocratic investment, Wall Street-friendly guy from the World Bank. Not a great election for Peru. And when you have margins as tight as this, we're talking about an election that was determined by less than 0.1% of the vote or 50,000 people. And Kuznetsky would barely win a mandate to run the country, as his party did do well in the, in the Congress. But in 2018, when the car wash corruption scandal would consume the presidency of Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff, um, it would make its way to Peru. And so when we talk about car wash, the car wash corruption scandal was basically where a whole bunch of Brazilian state-owned companies or private companies would get illicit or illegal contracts from the government and buy car washes to basically clean the money, a massive money laundering operation. And one found that President Kuznitsky, who managed to bank it before he was elected, in Peru was basically sort of complicit in these operations. And so in 2018, like Nixon uh, in the late 70s, who was basically promised that, hey, we're going to impeach you, so what are you going to do? Kuznitsky, upon the threat of a successful impeachment, resigned, which would see his vice president, um, independent and political neophyte Martin Vizcarra, take the mantle of office. Vizcarra, even to this day, remains a popular one of the more popular presidents in Peruvian politics because he was seen as being a man with no party, a political independent, and held to no one. And so this year when he got impeached by a Congress that was full of the opposition, people saw the impeachment as being for political reasons to where the head of the Congress would be made president, and that's what occurred. And so even to this day, and so this happened in October, so even since October, Peru, the capital of Peru and Lima, has been consumed by riots and protests against the removal of Martin Vizcarra. And now the nation is already um, sort of shrouded in rumors that there is a coming military coup. Um, while I don't see a military coup happening in the near future, I think it's very likely that um, Peru is going to return to history as capital becomes more scarce, as the Americans continue to step back, and Peru becomes even more of a backwater than it is today. I think it's very likely we see the resumption of military leadership in the country. And so when I start talking about the, the future of Peru, um, that's where I start to get worried about South America in general, because Peru has always been a sort of regional influence that is a barometer for stability in the continent. And so when Peru starts experiencing massive bouts of instability, where rumors of military coups are happening, that is largely a signal that the rest of the continent is likely going to experience that level of instability in the future. Chile, Brazil, um, and even to a limited extent, probably Colombia will experience massive levels of instability that haven't been seen since the mid to early 1900s. And so, like I said, I think it's very likely Peru returns to its history of being internally um, unstable, uh, monetarily, lots of inflation, um, um, a loss of prudency when it comes to spending and on budgets, and a return to military leadership. That sort of speaks to me why the rest of the continent isn't going to be very successful in the future, because as goes Peru, as goes the rest of the continent. And so... 
that's why I captioned this, the definition of instability, and why its past 20 years of success are probably not going to be repeated in the future. Now we move to Chile. Chile can be sort of surmised by the question, define the odds for too long? Mostly because if one looks at Chile, it's a very long and it's a very thin country. And so when we characterize Chile, we can basically characterize Chile as the nation that has either done one or two things. Has always managed to fail upwards or always sees victory from the jaws of defeat. And what do I mean by this? Chile has a very thin slice of usable land as it's smashed up against the Andes Mountains to the east and the Pacific Ocean to the west. And so when you get that sort of geography, you get a lot of mixed results. And the good thing is, is that the Andes Mountains protects it from all its regional powers that would be interested in taking Chile's land. Argentina being the one in the west and Bolivia and Peru to the north, which are bufferted by the Atacama Desert, which having been there is one of the driest places on earth. It's not very friendly to life. And if you're trying to invade Chile from the desert, you're going to have a hard time. It's a defender's paradise and an offensive army's nightmare. Um, the second thing, because the way it's pushed up against the Andes Mountains, you have the Nazca plate and the South American plate grinding against each other of the Nazca plate going underneath the South American plate. Lots of ge uh, geology and um, <laughs> tectonic terms in talking about here, but I'll get to it. And so when you have this nature of these two plates pressing against each other, the continental shelf is a lot closer to the Chilean mainland than it is, say, on the east coast of the United States. And what would be a geographically unfriendly country, which Chile obviously is, the plates when you move the continental shelf so much closer to land, it makes ports a lot more viable. So Chile, despite its bad geography, has three or four deep water ports, allowing it to be a nexus and logistical hub for trade. It's why the Spanish turned Chile into a logistical hub, and it's why Chile to this day remains a logistical hub from all of its mineral resources in copper, um, aluminum, lithium, and then it's limited agriculture production in Chilean fine wines, Chilean grapes, wheat, barley, and alpacas. Alpacas are very popular, and even lamb. And so even though it's incredibly hard or impossible to achieve economies of scale in a country that is limited in usable land that Chile is, these mixture of factors have sort of been an accidental boon for the country if the government is competent enough to see the opportunities and seize upon them where it can. And because of the inherited very good governance from the Spanish at the end of colonization, they were able to do this and basically do what every other South American country with bad geography has been mostly incapable of doing, with the exception of Colombia, and that is to succeed despite the odds. And also, as a funny anecdote, since we sort of poked fun of Peru for being um, basically taken over by a Japanese man, um, which I, when I talk about my friends and how amusing South American history is, you really can't think of anyone else that would be capable of immigrating from another country and then taking the reins of power. 
I think only Japan could do that. Um, and so to sort of poke fun at Chile, or at myself in this case, um, the man that helped Chile become independent in 1810 was a man known as Bernardo O'Higgins. And from that last name, he was obviously not Spanish. He was um, Irish. And so <laughs> um, the man who made Chile independent was a man who was not of Chile, but a man who was of Irish background and descent. And so you get these very strange and very thematic um, patterns where South Americans are very prideful of their history, uh, but it's not often the ones, it's not often Chileans are proving to our shaping its history. Uh, in Chile's her- and Chile's heritage, it's an Irishman, um, which um, my friends routinely made fun of me in, um, in college because I always joke about history, and they're like, oh, yeah, we can't listen to you, though, because your country was liberated by an Irishman. And I'm like, I can't respond to that. <laughs> so um, we'll move on from there. Uh, but we're going to talk about one of the other critical reasons why Venezuela has, um, I mean, rather, Chile has succeeded with democracy while other countries haven't. And that's because of a system known as authoritarian democracy. What is authoritarian democracy? Essentially, authoritarian democracy is a country that has elections, and Chile has had elections for most of its history. Um, but each government that's elected to power is equally authoritarian and oppressive of both parties. So you have the suppression of the press, but it's on the right and the left. You have the suppression of politicians, both on the right and the left, as long as you could prove corruption. And Chilean institutions have been relatively good at doing that. Um, and during this time, you'd obviously have a smattering of military. One does um, but what South American country doesn't. The only difference between Chilean democracy and its juntas is that the juntas would willingly step aside and allow the institutions of democracy to return in full order and not try to linger, do machinations in the background, manipulate politicians so they could eventually retake power in a second or third military junta. Um, but the transition from democracy to um, junta, junta to democracy has always been smooth, always been smooth, always fluid, and always on good terms. And it's because of the strength of Chilean institutions and its authoritarian tendencies allowed it to weather the political crises and civil wars that occurred in the latter half of the 19th century into the 20th century, where Argentina, where Peru, um, where Colombia in some ways failed and Brazil failed, Chile always managed to come on top. And where we start getting some changes is the Pinochet era in the 1970s through the 1990s, which would mark the final time the military would intervene directly in the nation's democracy. The military, under the united junta of the Air Force, the Army, and the Navy, would overthrow the government of Socialist President Salvador Allende. Salvador Allende was the first socialist politician to be elected in South America and the only elected socialist leader in South America up to that point, which was a remarkable achievement because a socialist would come to power on democratic strengths uh, where many during the Cold War in South America would come through military coups or civil wars. And so Salvador Allende, because of his basically destruction of um, Chilean institutions, the nationalization of the nation's commanding heights of the economy. So you're, you're farming, you're, you're mining, you're steel manufacturing, your manufacturing sectors. 
Um, it brought the nation to its knees in the Chilean peso experienced hyperinflation in the final year of his presidency in 19 and uh rather 1973 which would be the final year of his presidency um and during this time and especially in chilean history there's a lot of um debate over how big american involvement was and unlike most of the nations that were affected by operation condor the sort of cia operations remove a lot of socialist and unfriendly american leaders from power um, the Chilean military was already planning to overthrow Allende several years before Condor was ever written up. And so anyone who says that Operation Condor took a ma- was a massive influence in the overthrow of Sal- Salvador Allende, um, I think is a bit overstated. And so, and I think what sort of caps that off is the man himself who would come to lead the junta, um, Augusto Pinochet, um, who was the head of the military at the time. He was appointed by Allende in 1971 and was considered a loyal Allied, uh, Allende um, appointee. And even um, Augusto Pinochet would resist the calls of the other branches to become the head of the junta from 1971 through 73 and would only take the reins of power as the head of the junta when hyperinflation started threatening um Basically, the funds started to be going to the military and what was his sort of area of responsibility. And so when Pinochet became the head of the junta, he would basically force um, Allende to not only resign, um, but would basically corner him in a very expensive and very painful military operation that would see Allende um, kill himself while trapped in the presidential palace. And so... During this period, Pinochet is often credited with, like um, Fujimori of Peru, with righting the Chilean economy, returning Chile to a prudent, uh, a frugal spending regime, uh, rebalancing the economy's account balance, attracting American foreign aid and um, capital investment, um, de-oligarchizing the economy, removing the oligarchs or imprisoning the oligarchs. But that came with the price of massive political repression of the right and the left, which would see more effects on the left in particular, as most of the um, activists and left-leaning academics were often shipped off to um, Chilean possessions in the south of Chile or in Easter Islands to be isolated from the general public. And several thousand of them would end up dead by the time Pinochet would be removed from power in 1990 through a a democratic referendum. But because of the strength and loyalty of the military to Chilean institutions, when um, Pinochet would lose um, the referendum, actually fairly narrowly, it was um, 64% for the return to democracy. And I think people weren't expecting him to perform so well in the referendum, and he did, because it came to a roughly 60-40 outcome. Um, But... Pinochet, being a loyal servant of institutions, um, resigned and removed himself from power in 1990, which is what it allowed for the flex of the very uncharacteristically smooth transition from junta back to democracy. And it shows the flexibility of the strength of Chilean institutions. And since then, the Chilean government has gone through several seven transitions of power, passing um, the two-turn test, which sees um, power transition between opposite parties more than two times which basically says your democracy is destined for success. And in many ways, the Chilean 
democracy has been the example of that success. However, the past decade has seen Chilean growth slow considerably, and concerns over income inequality grow as Chile's capacity to grow um, among all the ladders of the economy hits the ceiling of the nation's geography. To where, and what I mean by that is that because you can't achieve economies of scale, you can't employ a larger segment of your younger population to be laborers or young educated individuals to work in mining companies, oil companies, farming um, plantations, or any of that sort of environment. And because it's hit the ceiling, um, the wealth gap between the rich and the poor has gotten wider. And that culminated in the election of um, President Bacharet, um, who was a the first social democrat and socialist party leader to be elected to power in the early 2000s, and which led to an expansion of the welfare state in an attempt to confront income inequality, but it didn't work out. And which led to the election of Sebastian Piñera for his first term in the mid-2010s, which he would lose to Bacharet again um, in 2014 and then see him return to power in 2018. Um, but because Sebastian Piñera, despite being the first right-wing leader to be reelected to the Chilean um, democracy since the end of Pinochet, has always been a weak president. And so when student protests broke out in 2019 over student debt, which are a very common occurrence in Santiago, um, when he cracked it down too hard by deploying the Caberneros, the um, police force, um, it led to a broader, much larger protest that the um, the socialists and the communists took advantage of to make Piñera look weak and to force him to announce a referendum on the Pinochet constitution, which is often credited for forcing the nation to be fiscally prudent, respect um, the law, property rights, and all the stuff that have made Chile very successful since the end of Pinochet. Um, and as a result, the referendum would be strongly in for, uh, again, for rewriting the constitution. And there's going to, and the second referendum, which would see it be a broad, broadly freshly elected constitutional convention where all the major leaders who will be responsible for writing the new constitution would be elected directly. And so what do I see for Chile in the next couple of years or even decades ahead? Um, it largely depends on the outcome of the direct elections of the representatives from the National Constitutional Conference early next year. And what really worries me is because the Socialists and the Communist Party candidates have all the momentum because they started the uprising, they started the protests, and they forced Sebastian Piñera to bend the knee. And as a result, conservatives broadly see Piñera as a spineless coward who will not turn out the necessary numbers to balance out the momentum behind the opposition. And because of that momentum, it's going to be very hard for any conservative candidates to come out and make sure the constitution is very is rewritten in a way that is incredibly similar to the Pinochet constitution, which means the constitution likely after the constitutional convention will be very similar to the South African constitution, which makes guaranteed rights to healthcare, to housing, to work, which would see a massive expansion of the welfare state which Chile, because it's so dependent on copper exports, can't really afford to do. And so you'll see it tap its sovereign wealth fund pretty aggressively to make all these things happen. And because the sovereign wealth fund is the only thing that allows Chilean workers, even the poorest, to retire even comfortably, you're going to start running into 
the problem of raiding the copper major, the state-owned copper company being raided as well, very similar to Venezuela. And so when I see patterns like that, I get very worried because all the things that allowed Chile to fail upwards or succeed by always seizing victory from the jaws of defeat, you might finally start to see the nation hit the ceiling of its capabilities and start to bounce downward in that they're going to start seizing defeat from the jaws of victory and finally failing downward. And so we're finally seeing history and geography finally catch up to the country that has defied it for almost 200 years. And so we should not ask for whom the bell tolls as the bell tolls for thee. Now we move to the country that has almost a picture-perfect definition of seizing defeat from the jaws of victory. And also proving why geography is not everything and why bad governance can even cause you to miss all the opportunities that your good geography offers. So let's look at what Argentina has in regards to tools for success and why any nation would go to war to have all of them. Navigable, navigable, I can't say this word. Okay, rivers that you can move stuff on. We'll leave it at that. Um, these rivers, the Parana and the Paraguay rivers, all of the heads of these rivers are in Argentina. And even would go to war with Paraguay and Brazil to get the headwaters of these two rivers. And so as a result, when you have these deep water rivers that allow you to move goods up and down them, they are incredibly valuable for a nation like Argentina that has a robust agricultural economy with beef, wheat, potatoes, maize, and all these crucial agricultural exports, but also for mining, um, your aluminums, your lithiums, your uh, your nickels, and all these resources all can be moved up and down the Paraná and the Paraguay rivers for one thirtieth or if you're going over mountains, 100 times less if you're doing it on a river. Argentina has two, and they have the longest continuous stretch of navigable riverways, only second to the United States and Germany and France. Your second reason why Argentina is set for success? Weak neighbors or geography that protects them from strong ones. The Andes Mountains separate Argentina from historical rivals like Chile and notorious basket case Bolivia. The rainforests protect Argentina from Paraguay, and the Rio Grande do Sul protect the rainforests in the Rio Grande do Sul in Brazil, protect Argentina from its rival power in the north, Brazil. And since Paraguay can't harm anyone, if they tried and Uruguay has never thought about harming anyone, you have the almost exact setup that the United States has in the northern half of the hemisphere with Canada to its north and Mexico to its south. When you have weak neighbors or geography that separates you from them, you can develop in the safety and comfort of your own home without having to worry about going to war or defending land. Three, an abundance of temperate climate zones that allow for cheap agriculture and cattle ranching to take place, making Argentina self-sufficient in all things agriculture and even being a net exporter. What is so crucial about temperate climate zones and why they're superior to um, rainforest climate zones is because of winter. Winter does this magical thing where it kills all the pests that usually hunt farmers in the summer. 
and allows for the soil to regenerate over the winter, basically reducing the cost you need to spend on fertilizers or lime or things that help regenerate the soil when it's been heavily used. Argentina, because it's in a temperate climate zone and has access to winters, essentially gets that all for free, making them more price competitive than Brazil, than Russia or China, who are all their competitors in the space of wheat and soy production. Your fourth reason, shale fields. The shale fields in Argentina and the Rio de la Plata region are the second to none compared to the United States in quality and quantity, allowing for potential energy independence and even limited export capacity. Obviously, Argentina isn't a source of great capital or great capital generating capability as its 90 years of poor governance would dictate. But when the climate of capital is right and when the relationship with the United States hasn't been better, there are opportunities to get access to cheap capital to build out the shale fields necessary in order for Argentina to become a small shale superpower. Your fifth and final reason. Argentina is amongst one of the most isolated countries in the world. It is, it is as far away from South Africa as it is from Europe meaning any power that would want to take Argentina's land because of how good it is, can't. Even if Argentina has a limited military capacity, it has a strong defensive position simply because it's too far away from anyone for anyone to desire to take it away from them. The closest continent to Argentina is Antarctica. And it's in my firm belief, after my eight years of education from high school to college, that the penguins and the sea lions aren't going to be mounting a massive invasion campaign against Argentina anytime soon. Argentina has all the benefits of isolation that Ecuador has, but has all the benefits of great geography that it doesn't. Argentina should be a regional superpower, if not a superpower. So what went wrong? Essentially everything politically that can go wrong and why geography doesn't mean everything. Argentina between 1814 and 1861 would be described as every year a president, as the government was routinely either couped, resigned, impeached, countercouped, or died in office. 38 presidents in a span of 47 years, making the sort of creation of a competent civil service that is proficient in all its all its managerial capacities largely non-existent as each president would bring in the people they want or give away positions to the people that they like, meaning that its ability to generate that sort of capacity and anti-corruption capability was not there early on when it needed it. 1861 through 68 were the war presidents as the war of the Triple Alliance saw the election laws bent so hard it was essentially a dictatorship for seven years and a rotating presidency via the cabinet for the final year of the war. 1868 onward saw the transition to democracy with elections every four years. This period would be characterized by stability and prosperity as the British investment in the nation, nation's industrial and other industrialized nations in Europe and the United States made it the fifth wealthiest country in the world prior to the, the First World War and one of the 15 most wealthiest nations by 1932. But what went wrong? Um, after the end of the First World War, 1918 through 1922, would see the English call upon all its debts from all the countries it had invested in between 1870 through 1918. Argentina was one of those largest investment hubs and debtors to England. 
And as a result, with all the capital being rapidly pulled out of the Argentine system, the economy stagnated from 1922 till 1930 and went into a massive depression in 1932. And as a result, the presidents between that time period would essentially not only give the English the sole right to sell coal into the Argentine market, but would sell off all the cattle farms to the English. Now, selling your entire rights to your own farming capacity is not a smart or business-savvy idea. In fact, it's, it's a horrible idea. You shouldn't do it. And as a result, this backlash from these horrible deals and the massive collapse in the economy led to the election of one Juan Perón, a essentially a fascist, not quite fascist. I think fascist is a overused and um, not very well understood term. But between 1943 to 1945, after these deals were made with England, would see the return of coups, counter coups, counter coups of the counter coups, and would see the rise of Juan Perón, who was at this time a transportation secretary for one of these military juntas that had stepped in in one of these counter counter coups. And when Juan Perón rose to power, he would nationalize large segments of the economy, co-opt the trade unions, and engage in import substitution industrialization. Import substitution industrialization, known as ISI, is a way to industrialize your economy by essentially blocking out all your competition in segments of the economy that you find important. In the case of Argentina, it was in shipbuilding, automobile manufacturing, mining, and other forms of additive or higher level manufacturing requiring, requiring massive um, inlays in education. And during this time period, between 1945 through 1950 would see the single largest period of growth in Argentina that had been seen since the early 1990, early 1900s. The problem is, is when you engage in import substitution, not only do you need to have the education um, establishment in place to fill all these new managerial positions that will need to be learned on the job, you need to have deep pools of capital in order to fund the creation of an independent industry that can compete with other worldwide competitors. China had this money, which is why it can almost compete peer to peer in some of these industries. Argentina was coming off bankruptcy when Juan Perón rose to power. And so when they, they ran out of money pretty quickly. And so between 1946 and 1955, you would have very different results. For fi first five years, exponential growth. Last five years of his long tenure presidency and as head of the country, massive tenure, massive five-year depression. And when he couldn't correct these financial imbalances, he would be removed from power in another coup which would see the nation managed by multiple different military juntas that would just oversee stagnant or negative growth between 1955 through 1973. In 1973, the juntas would have enough trying to manage the economy because as we all know, the military is very good at managing the economy. Um, 1973 would see the return of Juan Perón as president until he died in 1974. He would only be president for a year. And his vice president, his wife, would be taking over that slot. In 1976, after serving for two years, she would be removed in a coup as well because despite being very popular with the Argentine people and being reelected, and his wife remains very remains popular to this day in Argentine politics, um, they were unable to fix the current account balance for when Juan Perón originally ran the country in 1940 through 1950. And so they were couped. Um, 
And so 1976 from 83 would see the return of military rule, which was ended when the Argentines not very cleverly declared war on the English by invading the Falkland Islands, where the sheep outnumbered the people. And so after the failure to win the Falklands lore, the war and the collapse in the economy as the economy was effectively um, turned into cash in order to fund the war, the economy collapsed. And so in 1983, um, the military would finally return the reins of power back to the people and elections would return to the country. Um, when we look at Argentina from 1983 to present, it would be characterized as an economy that would be going through fits of growth and recession as the Peronist party, the party of Juan Perón, bounced in and out of power, reforming the government or ruining state finances along the way. It was very interesting that some of these presidents would deregulate the economy, try to fix the account balance, and then another president from the same party would come in, undo all that progress, expand the government budget, increase the subsidies, increase the nationalizations, and just push Argentina further and further closer to the cliff, which it had already gone over multiple different times at this point. But it's just, it's the cliff that finds a plateau and then finds another cliff. And so it's just a never-ending process of going over cliffs. And finally, with the election of um, the Kirchner, which you see Argentina default on its debt four times between um, 1983 through um, 2018, where it would default for the fifth time. Um, but at, finally, um, there is light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to this mismanagement and perhaps... Um, finally, good governance returning to Argentina. So what does this mean for the future? Alberto Fernandez, who is the current head of the Peronist Party and the president now in power, after uh, Marcelo Macri, um, the head of the center-right center party of Argentina, lost his re-election this past year. Alberto Fernandez of the Peronist Party, who chose de Kirchner, the president who's largely... Um, in many eyes of the public held responsible for Argentina's poor economic performance, made vice president. Alberto Fernandez was essentially expected to be a puppet of de Kirchner. De Kirchner would effectively get a third term in office. But that hasn't happened. Upon ascending to the presidency, Alberto Fernandez did a couple of things that were crucial to not only reassuring investors, but getting the refinancing deal done. Alberto Fernandez would, one, freeze pension and public sector wage increases. Very unpopular in Argentina, but very crucial to balancing the budget. Two, starting negotiations with private creditors to refinance and haircut some of the nation's private debts, um, and very intelligently seizing upon the coronavirus crisis, he was able to achieve the impossible by setting the value of the $65 billion in private debt at 54.8% cents on the dollar, effectively achieving a haircut of $35.6 billion, pushing back interest payments to 2025, five years in the future. Three, he hiked taxes to help fill the hole in the nation's current account. Effectively, the party of spending is engaging in austerity. Um, and for Argentina, who has already fallen so far, Hiking and engaging austerity is not necessarily a bad policy because if you've already fallen off the cliff, there really isn't any further you can fall. And so by engaging these policies, not only is there attempts to cut back the large S of the public sector, but attempting to achieve a current account balance, even in a time where achieving that is very difficult. And then fourth and finally, the president will likely start negotiations with the IMF 
to refinance its $57 billion loan it received in 2018 as Marcelo Macri tried to end the run on the peso, which would see the peso fall from roughly 18 pesos to the dollar to 35 pesos to the dollar. And they would receive a large $57 billion loan from the IMF basically to try and backstop that run, which I don't know why the, that is very unlike the IMF as the IMF doesn't like to lend into a hole. That's why the IMF was very hesitant to get involved in the Greek bailout. And it was only because the ECB stepped in to be the creditor for like 90% of the Greek debt that the IMF was willing to step in for 10 to 15% of that. And so the IMF's willingness to give that $57 billion loan was likely given for political reasons. And so its willingness to probably haircut the debt on that $57 billion, because it was already a political deal in the first place, Alberto Fernandez is likely going to achieve a haircut of 75 to 60% off this loan. And so when you're reducing the debt from effectively $110 billion to less than $50 billion, I think that's a hell of a comp, a, a very, well, it's not going to be let. I think it's a hell of an accomplishment. It's going to be between 50 and $60 billion. And that's going to be 50% of it wiped away, essentially. He is lined up to be a very successful president in the eyes of international creditors, the Americans, who will be the most interested in investing in Argentina once the coronavirus crisis has sort of settled out. Um, but it's not all good news. Um, since he is of the Peronist Party, some um, some politically cantankerous uh, issues have re-arisen. Um, the president has reinstituted controversial farmers' taxes that make Argentine agricultural exports uncompetitive and expensive for domestic consumers, which in a nation that's trying to avoid um, inflation, um, while they're not trying to debase the currency by printing a ton of money, they are making things more expensive by taxing them pretty heavily. And because the agricultural sector is so important in Argentina and in this coronavirus crisis, the demand for food has sort of fallen off a cliff in a way, it is very hard for already hurting farmers to cooperate with the government that's already trying to tax them for more. Um, private property rights are still largely murky like legally, and so the ability for the government to come in and nationalize large segments of the economy again, as Juan Perón did, and some of his successors between 1985 and today have done, does generate a lot of issues for international investors, and it's why um, even companies like Ford, even though they have factories in Argentina, they're largely mothballed and unused, mostly because they don't know if they're going to keep that property or whether the government's going to try to take it away. And three, um, regulations are still heavily burdensome, and so even though Argentina has made um, spits and spurts of improvement since returning to democracy. They're still very um, detrimental to trying to encourage private investment. And Marcelo Macri, who was president for four years, sort of failed to achieve those deregulatory um, goals that he had set out, even though he was the largest party in the parliament. Um, and so it's a sort of a mixed bag with the fact that Alberto Fernandez has made such strident progress towards achieving effectively austerity goals um, does reassure me that Argentina is heading in the right direction, even if they're at some times taking two steps forward and one step back. Um, not to mention, combined with this road to recovery and the collapse of global capital in regards to how much capital is in the system, Argentina's problems aren't going to look as bad anymore because when capital is scarce, People are going to be looking for sources of yield in order to 
stay out of government bonds, which in Europe are largely negative. People think U.S. bonds are going negative as well. I don't think that's the case. Um, but people are going to be looking for yield outside of U.S. Um, equities, bonds, and other investments in real estate. And I think Argentina remains one of the more attractive places. And so when there's less places to choose and Argentina looks pretty good on the road to recovery, I think Argentina will finally be able to return to good governance, use geography to its benefit, and become the one success on the continent that really, really matters. Now we move to Uruguay. Uruguay, I have captioned in this section as the Switzerland of the South. And a lot of people might be surprised by this characterization as Uruguayan history has often been marked by instability. And so I'm going to provide a little background and then explain what comes next. Uruguay could be described as Chile without the geographical difficulties at its as its wide open temperate spaces allow for the development of massive agriculture and cattle ranching economy and a logistical hub for the Spanish Navy, resulting in a strong but autonomous um, autonomous outpost despite its distance from Spain proper. And so not only do you have the capacity to grow as an economy and be somewhat extractive, but you are also in a strategic location enough for the Spanish to invest in good governance and making Uruguay a logistical hub. So you got two of the advantages that Chile only had one of them of. And then um, while Uruguay would be considered um, con contested by the Portuguese as there were a couple of small conflicts between um, Portuguese Brazil and Spanish Uruguay as both of these colonial powers wanted that little piece of buffer but eventually they came to agree that Uruguay would be sort of this neutral territory that would buffer um, Portuguese claims and Spanish claims into Brazilian proper. Um, but however upon independence the battle for influence over Uruguay between Argentina and Brazil would begin almost immediately. This would be a sort of quasi cold war between the two which would incidentally cause the War of the Triple Alliance. And so, as I'm going to recap very briefly, um, there were two different factions in Uruguay in government upon independence, the Blancos and the Colorados. The Blancos would win the first um, civil war upon independence, which were pro-Argentine, and the Colorados would flee into Brazil. The Colorados, not taking defeat in stride, would eventually return to um, Uruguay with Brazilian um, support, to invade and retake the country. And because of that sort of back and forth influence over Uruguay that we would see sort of repeated in the Cold War, but across the planet instead of just like South America, um, it would kick off the War of the Triple Alliance, which would see Paraguay destroyed, um, Uruguay um, basically unstable for most of its early history, and Brazil and Argentina becoming partners and competitors rather than enemy rivals. And so... At the conclusion of this war, um, like I said, Uruguay would be um, really unstable. You would have coups, counter-coups, very similar to Peru in that you just insane sort of um, domestic political environment. Uh, but once things got stabilized in 1890, Uruguay would for a brief time become the richest country in South America by being the proverbial breadbasket. And this would even become more insane that by the time the Second World War kicked off, so between 1938 and 1945, Uruguay 
would be in the top five richest countries in the world. Insane. It's a small country, very small. Um, but because it had such good relationships with the allies, it became the proverbial breadbasket of democracy, providing massive loads of beef, wheat, vegetables, and even some mineral goods as well to the allies. But at the conclusion of the war, would see the Uruguayan economy contract sharply, with the currency losing 60% of its value and the nation coming to the precipice of default. This result in a small but short civil war where urban combat was the name of the game. And this would see the reintroduction of massive U.S. influence as um, not only were the Americans heavily engaged with Colombia at this time, confronting the cartels, um, but they would be very heavily involved in urban combat in Uruguay as well, which would be very crucial to um, what the U.S. perceived as a needed knowledge base for the war in Vietnam. And so during this time, you would see, again, more military rule, but not as nearly as aggressive in the sort of coups and counter coups that were of the earlier period. Um, but by 1985, like many countries in South America, you would see the return of democracy and much needed economic reforms, liberalization of capital markets, investing in the port of Montevideo, helping reconcile and unite the nation as the quality of life improved. Because at this time, what caused much of the guerrilla warfare in the urban centers was this divide between sex of the poor and sex of the wealthy. And because after the return of democracy in 1985 and the end of the Cold War, the massive onslaught of capital, the money was there to provide the stability that would be required to reconcile the country and unite once again as one people. And so by the late 1990s and early 2000s, we see the economy get um, despite the improvements of life between 1985 and 1990, um, the economy would get pummeled in the late 1990s through the 2000s because of how dependent Uruguay was on consumption from Brazil and Argentine markets for its agricultural exports, especially when the Brazilians devalued the Rao in 1999 and the default of Argentina um, in 2001. The massive correction in the economy was by route 20%, so not nearly as rough as the end of the Second World War, but still pretty bad and definitely threatened Uruguay's stability. Um, since then, however, Uruguay has diversified its export markets and sources of capital and has since um, been able to experience years after years of stable growth as the nation has hit its stride as the continent's shipping, service, and tourism hub. So what is next? Uruguay will likely retain its independence and status as a neutral partner of Argentina. Not only is the nation a good buffer between Brazil and Argentine interests, but is a banking hub where politicians and businessmen hide their wealth, which is why at the very top of this segment on Uruguay, I led with the Switzerland of the South. Because a lot of the benefits the Swiss have in their um, strategic location in the Alps, in the mountains, and between the major powers of Germany, Italy, and France, they have become a banking hub and a service economy that caters to all these countries. Uruguay has become that for Brazil and Argentina in a way where businessmen and politicians hide all their wealth in Uruguay, and when there's massive ta tax increases in either country, they flee to Uruguay, so there's always, almost essentially, a limitless pit of capital that's always fleeing to Uruguay. As each economy stirs struggles, and as I've captioned at the very end of this this um, segment, by hook or by crook, Uruguay has made itself the Switzerland of the South. 
it will likely continue to cater and provide services for regions, for the regions rather, the regions, politicians, aristocrats, and business moguls. Um, what I think is most notable about Uruguay is its sort of attraction to the American um, expat community. It's a very cheap place to live. The internet speeds are great. And it's very isolated from the rest of the world, and it's very stable. And so Uruguay's destination for expats, retirees, um, tourism, shipping, as it is a logistical hub, um, will continue to remain very attractive. And Uruguay will always be um, not quite a shining light, because a shining light means um, somewhat of the superpower characteristics you're going to be seeing from Argentina in the next couple of decades. Um, but it will be a sort of shining spot on the continent as being a source of stability, um, tourism, and good governance. And so we transition now to Bolivia and Paraguay, which I have captioned as gravity and overplaying your hand. Bolivia and Paraguay used to be very divergent after birth. Bolivia, after achieving independence from Spain, almost immediately entered revolutions, civil war, annexation by Peru, civil war with Peru, war with Chile, war with Paraguay, war with Brazil, war from Argentina, and that ever since independence, Bolivia has only gotten smaller and more unstable. Bolivia remains one of the few states in South America where the indigenous population remains about half the nation's population, if not more. And as a result, as um, election rights were expanded to include the indigenous population, elections became more cantankerous, more violent, and more controversial. The election of um, Evo Morales, the socialist candidate in Bolivia, was particularly controversial as the wealthy aristocrats that still live in Bolivia, who controlled most of the industries in Bolivia, had most of their assets confiscated, nationalized, or collectivized by um, Evo Morales which would come in the um, counter-reaction of the removal of Evo Morales a couple of years ago, not even a couple of years ago, I think it was the end of 2019, so fairly recently, and the temporarily um, insertion of the right-wing aristocratic party as the government-leading Bolivia, and which has since had new elections and re-elected a socialist candidate that was endorsed by Evo Morales. Um, the more... Bolivia becomes isolated, the more it becomes poor, and the more the internal divisions become wider, the more likely Bolivia is going to experience the instability we're seeing in Venezuela right now. And because of its isolation from the United States and um, similar allied powers makes it not a very popular place to invest for political reasons, but because the government is not friendly to private property or private investment makes it very unattractive for Western investors as well. And since Western investors are the only ones holding money for development, Bolivia is likely going to stop growing, become more unstable and a source for instability around South America. Paraguay? Paraguay is sort of the anti-Bolivia when it was founded. Paraguay, after achieving independence, was a regional power with a professional army at its peak of 250,000 men. Food and energy self-sufficient because of its location on the Rio de la Plata, meaning that food and agriculture were plentiful. Its access to coal reserves or just wood in its rainforest made it energy self-sufficient. Access to the Paraná River made it easy to access the ocean and international markets. But then... Paraguay overplayed its hand. Paraguay started a war with three of its neighbors and has been a basket basket case ever since. Paraguay to this day remains a poor to at best a lower middle income country. Not, and I say barely lower middle income because 
Ecuador is more stable and more wealthy than Paraguay. Paraguay to this day, um, because of the demographic imbalance I mentioned in the first episode, because so much of its population was killed off in the war, 75% of the population, 65% of the males were killed off. That is not conducive to growth. And as a result, there is always political infighting, um, fighting over scarce resources, and almost continual intervention by Argentina to stabilize it. Because despite its geographical strengths, Argentina would prefer that Paraguay remains stable at all costs, even if it remains poor. And so because it overplayed its hand at birth, Bolivia and Paraguay are all in the same basket of being basket cases or just countries that can't can't succeed or aren't conducive to success. And so what do I expect? I think Paraguay will remain poor, isolated, and at a docile nation within the Argentine sphere of influence. Any success the nation will achieve will require the support and consent of the Argentines. And because the Argentines want to dominate the Paraná and Paraguay rivers, um, the Paraguayan government will have to basically uh, come to terms with being vassalized by the Argentines. And so a nation that is once very proud and very independent will likely become subjugated in order to succeed. Bolivia will likely continue its trend for instability and one that Chilean and Peruvian militaries will watch with concern as the collapse of Bolivia could destabilize an already precarious Peru and a political backlash in Chile where tensions are already simmering over taking Venezuela and refugees could erupt. Um, ironically, one of the few things the Chilean and Peruvians can agree on is that the basing of troops on each other's borders is not very important as basing them on the Bolivian border is more important. Sure, the Peruvians and the Chileans will always trade words with each other and be very unwilling to cooperate, but one of the few things they can agree on is that Bolivia is a threat to both nations' internal instability, especially Peru's, and the chances of intervention in Bolivia by Chile and Peru increase as it becomes more unstable. As for for Peru, the stakes are considerably higher as it has a history of internal instability. And Chile, because it's going through internal instability right now, and it's likely only going to get worse as the constitutional changes come into place, Chile is likely to intervene as well as part of a Peru-Bolivian peacekeeping force, perhaps. Or just sealing the border to Bolivia to where refugees couldn't flee into both nations, um, which would lead to a massive humanitarian crisis, um, but a crisis that both nations are willing to pay in an effort to preserve their own governance. And so we're an hour and a half into this conversation, and so I didn't expect it to go this long, but it is the reason why I split it into two parts from the original half. And so the final country we're going to talk about is Brazil. And Brazil, as I have captioned, is where money triumphed over geography and history. Brazil suffers from two critical weaknesses that prevent it or impede development. One, its rainforest climate, which covers over 80% of the country, and the mountainous geography. We'll start with the rainforest climate. Rainforest flora and fauna, as I mentioned in the Venezuelan section, sap the nutrients out of the soil, requiring constant and consistent rehabilitation and treatment with fertilizers, lime, pesticides as as without seasonal winter to allow the soil to regenerate and the continuous um, bombardment by rainforest pests on agriculture makes Brazilian agriculture price uncompetitive, making Brazilian 
Um, as a result, it makes Brazilian agriculture labor intensive and requires three to five times more expense than competitors like the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. And part of that three to five times more expensive is requiring that three to five times more input costs in order to make the soil <clears throat> usable for agriculture, but also to provide the pesticides necessary um, to continuously defeat the pests which will consume the crops. And the second weakness is the mountainous geography. As I mentioned in my comparison with Peru and how the Appalachian Mountains are different, um, the Brazilians have what's known as the Brazilian Shield, this massive mountain range on the nation's coast. And as a result, for example, I'm sure many of you have seen postcards of Rio de Janeiro or many of these other coastal cities in Brazil where you have these mountains sloping beautifully into the ocean and you have these sort of little valley towns like Rio de Janeiro. But they look very pretty on postcards, but they're horrible for infrastructure. And it does two things. One, it makes infrastructure to connect the interior with the coast incredibly expensive and limited to a couple of locations. In Brazil's case, there are only six roads that lead from the interior of Brazil to the exterior where there are ports, and they're less than four lanes. So every time the planting season is at an end, you have bumper to bumper truck traffic full of soy, wheat, maize, and corn trying to make its way out of the interior and into the coast. This makes transportation costs for agriculture incredibly expensive and makes Brazilian agriculture less competitive. And second, makes accessing deep water ports at near impossible, requiring massive expensive dredging and environmental destruction to create the minimum space for deep water loading and unloading. Brazilian ports are some of the least um, preferred when it comes to international shipping. Um, the port of Montevideo is the best in its class, and it's why the port of Montevideo is the best in the continent, and why Brazilian um, ports are often at the bottom of that list. They're small. They're not as deep as they need to be, which limits the throughput of goods that can come in and out of the country. And so how does this reflect on Brazilian history? Um, when we look at Brazilian history, we see that unlike most of the New World, which was settled by people who were poor, Brazil was settled by people who were already rich, as they were the only people that had the money necessary to build out all the infrastructure to take um, goods from the interior to the exterior to where you had the ports. And what does that lead to? Unfortunately, um, in order to make these farms, plantations, and mines profitable, it led to slavery. As a result, a lot of people don't like to remember that Brazil was one of the last nations to outlaw and ban slavery. And what has continued since the emancipation of the um, black population in Brazil and the native population of Brazil is a system of sharecroppers and low-skilled labor who are too poor to migrate to the cities, but compensated enough, just enough to be complacent. And as a result, Brazil um, has been one of the most unequal when it comes to income inequality. But most of all, because of all these special interests in all these provinces, from agriculture to mining and even some business interests, the, company, the country has always been internally divided, where you would have an outward-facing central government that was more confederacy than federation. 
And so you would have these provinces and oligarchs and plantation aristocracy known as the cadillos or strongmen who sought to control the interests of the government and would continuously fight between themselves and against each other because what they perceived as basically was a zero-sum game to where whoever controls the government, say if the miners control the government and the agriculturalists are pushed from power, all the transportation funds and all the effort in order to build out that segment of the economy will, will always hurt the agricultural sector. Or if the business sector takes over, it hurts the miners and the agriculturalists. And so it's a rotating circle of zero-sum games between all these interests, which for most of Brazil's independent history has led to weak government. And so how was what Brazil able to overcome its geography and its persistent history of internal oppression, internal division, and confederacy? Simple. Lots of money. When Brazil transitioned from military rule to democracy, it did it at the absolute right time, which was the end of the Cold War. And I, as I have mentioned even in the first segment of this podcast, and even in parts of this podcast, the end of the Cold War led to the peace dividend, the massive demilitarization of all the armies in Europe and the United States, leading to more money freed up by the government, which was returned to the people, and then the maturing of the baby boomers all putting their money into savings, 401ks, investment vehicles, which led to the absolute deluge of capital needed to bring a lot of these countries out of the wilderness and into the international system. Second, Brazil in its early years after independence from transitioning back to democracy from military dictatorship was led by savvy, savvy well-educated technocrats that made the necessary market reforms, government centralization, and regulatory reduction to allow Brazil to succeed as much as it has, but nothing more. Mostly because a lot of these decisions made by the technocrats were very unpopular, tolerated for the first 10 years, but almost immediately these people were removed. And what sort of where we saw started to see the backsliding was the election of socialist candidate Luiz Lula da Silva, um, which oversaw not only a massive expansion in the Brazilian government in every segment of the economy, but virtually a lost decade of growth between 2010 and 2018, which led, as in politics so many people like to talk about, where there is a reaction, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And because Brazil had swung so far to the left, now the nation would swing far to the right, which led to the election of one Jair Bolsonaro. Jair Bolsonaro is a very well-known uh, right-wing um, political leader in Brazil prior to his election, known for his um, very profane comments. And even... During his election, he said very profoundly, the one thing the Nazis did wrong was that they were too easy on their political opponents. This man now leads Brazil. Brazil was um, elected Jared Bolsonaro with the mandate of law and order and economic reform. And Jared Bolsonaro did a couple of things. Not only did he bring the military out of the wilderness, which had been almost de almost neutered after transitioning back to democracy and refused to get involved in any political disputes or intervene in any internal conflicts, which led to massive expansions in crime and instability in the country. But Jair Bolsonaro, being a former military man himself, would bring them out of the wilderness and back into government. 
military generals and former leaders now are full are in almost every position in his cabinet and now even command the police forces of multiple different cities and its coast and interior the rehabilitation of the military brought back some semblance of law and order and Jared Bolsonaro, within the first year of his administration, pushed through um, pension reform, which would save a decent amount of money in the budget over the next decade. The problem is, is that the coronavirus essentially stopped him from doing any more, such as making the central bank fully independent and deregulating the state. And in order to maintain his political popularity, where so many other leaders in the West have failed, he implemented a massive government spending program where money would be handed out to large segments of the poor population, which is the traditional base of the Socialist Party. And as a result, his popularity has always been above 50% through this entire crisis. And this is where I move into what comes next. Jared Bolsonaro faces re-election in 2022 and has, as I said, remained popular because of his expensive and extensive stimulus programs. Here's the problem. Not only has the central bank raised the question of the sustainability of these programs, but so has his party, the Congress, and even Jared Bolsonaro himself. The problem is, is that he knows that the only way he's going to get reelected is if he continues these programs. And since the Brazilian economy is still considered an emerging market, thus a very risky environment to invest, and because the country has so much debt that's not denominated in um, Brazilian real, but mostly in euros and dollars. If the country chooses to print a ton of real, it takes more real to pay back dollar or euro denominated debt. And in order to continue these massive stimulus programs, Jair Bolsonaro will need to keep printing presses running in order to print more reals to hand out to the poor. So he will remain more popular, but inflation is likely going to skyrocket within the next one to two years, which will ensure his reelection but almost certainly cost Brazil another lost decade or complete collapse. Second, the rehabilitation of the military, in a sense, is the backup in case Brazilian democracy fails. Politicians on the left and the right have debated for almost two decades whether or not the military should be back into politics. The election of Bolsonaro essentially answered that for them, and the military has returned to politics. To this day, the military now operates most of police activities in the favelas, the slum equivalent in Brazil, and almost routinely every single day launch counterattacks, counteroffensive drug interdiction missions into the favelas in order to stabilize crime. While the incarceration rate in Brazil has increased, the crime level hasn't um, lowered and instability has gotten worse. I think it's very likely Brazilian democracy will not be able to handle the pressure of this instability, and the military may return to power in order to provide that stability. Um, but in general, when I think about the future of the country, it is no longer going to be the success story. It is not going to be the largest economy on the continent. It will be returning to its history of being an eternally divided nation where oligarchic, aristocratic, caldillo interests dominate politics and where only strong men can ensure the country remains even somewhat relevant and somewhat attractive to American capital. And so that's where we sort of conclude about our, our whirlwind tour of almost two hours through South America. And the reason why I wanted to choose this topic is because you got to see 
not only South America through the eyes of a South American, but you got to see sort of how I think about these things. When it comes to geopolitics and studying these nations, you have to look at a couple of key factors. Geography, resources, age demography, and the strength or weakness of their institutions. These four factors are the most important to determining the success of a nation. And you could, of course, miss or get half of one of these right and still succeed. But if you get all of these wrong, it takes an overwhelming success in one in that for most of these countries, the overwhelming presence of, um, of capital and money in the system. And that's going away. And so I love South America. South America is my home. But when I look at it objectively, it's hard for me to see any routes, routes to success from many of these nations leaving. Um, some of my crazier hypotheses is that I think eventually um, Chile will probably ask for an economic union with Argentina, despite their historical tensions between each other. Um, but we are, we've already seen Chile and Argentina improve their relations since 1981, um, doing joint um, Coast Guard operations, joint maritime operations. Um, the Chilean military was the first to step up to help the Argentine Navy um, locate one of the subs that had sunk in 2018. Chile and Argentina have become essential partners to each other. And I think as Chile's economic conditions become worse, Chile will likely look to form a union with Argentina. As not only will Argentina be more attractive economically to capital, um, but a lot of the things that Chile has could be essential to the expansion of the Argentine economy, such as copper tapping into Chile's, Ch Chile's wealth of lithium, Chile's well-educated population, but would also give the Chilean lower class an opportunity to achieve um, a level of prosperity that they haven't been able to achieve in their own country. And once you unite these two countries, Chile can overcome some of its geographical weaknesses by inheriting some of Argentina's geographical strengths. And so when we start thinking about South America, I think we're going to see more consolidation, more authoritarianism, and less success stories. And even some civilizational collapses like we're going to see in Venezuela. Or we're going to see some middle-of-the-ground winners like Colombia. But the real winners of the continent are probably going to be Argentina and Uruguay. Uruguay simply because it has set itself up as the perfect middleman and the perfect source of preserving capital where capital is trying to run away. Of course, a lot of money is going to flee to the United States. The United States still remains the top, top um, last-stop shop for capital-fleeing countries. Um, but for that capital that wants to remain in South America, it's going to flee to Uruguay because of the emphasis the Uruguayan government has placed on the strength of its institutions, the strength of its laws, and the strength of its service and banking sectors as well. And so I just want to conclude by saying thank you, all of you for uh, taking this chance on this podcast, for all you new listeners who are joining in, and of course, um, for all the people that helped bring me to this point and help inspire me to do this. Um, my first podcast I perceive is very rough, but after listening it to a couple of times, I don't think it was as rough as it was. But this second podcast, I feel like I've really hit my stride. So again, thank you all of you, and I look forward to um, our third podcast released Wednesday of next week. 
I'm going to be taking the rest of the week off so I can prepare for our next topic. And I believe I'm probably going to discuss Brexit, as Brexit is the most prominent issue that's going to happen very close because um, the UK is very close to falling out of the EU, where on January 1st of 2021, at 12.01 a.m., the UK will crash out of the EU. And I think a hard Brexit is the likely result. And I want to talk about what I think is going to come next. What does a U.S.-U.K. trade deal look like? And how does the U.K. want to use its independence to sort of reclaim its place in the sun? I hope you guys are all looking forward to that as much as I am. And I hope all of you have an amazing rest of your week and a more restful weekend. Cheers and have a good day, everyone. See you soon.